Grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 6, and as you're finding your place there, uh, let me just uh, say thank you to Steve, who preached a couple Sundays ago, and Nate filled in last Sunday as well. Uh, Took off two full weeks for vacation. I've never done that in 24 years or somewhere in that neighborhood of ministry, taking that much time off consecutively. I've never taken two Sundays off in a row, even for a mission trip. I've always worked everything out so I could at least... Uh, be back that second Sunday, and uh, it was just one of those things where we're like, we're going to take two weeks off, and I uh, haven't been home back in Arkansas in three and a half years to see my most of my family, and uh, so thank you, church, for allowing us to do that, and grateful for uh, just godly men that can step in and, and preach and, and lead, and so it's just good for us to be away and kind of refresh ourselves. It's been a, a very busy couple years uh, in life in general everywhere, but in my life specifically, it's been crazy, especially the last 10 months as I have been uh, leading this and we've been building. And then I took on this wonderful role as a school board member and we decided to hire a superintendent. So I've just been going 90 to nothing for a, a lot of months. And so it was good to have downtime to just kind of do nothing but eat and hang out with people, did a little fishing. It, it was good, good to be away. So thank you, church, for, for that. Um, this morning, we're going to pick up where we left off uh, uh, three Sundays ago there in Luke chapter 6, and we're going to roll right along, uh, working verse by verse through the gospel of Luke. And so find your place there. We're going to be in verses uh, 20 through 37, or 36, I should say, this morning. But way back when, uh, December 11th, specifically 1950, I don't know how many of y'all were alive back then, don't want you to raise your hand. But in December 11th, 1950, there was a girl born into a wealthy Greek family. Her name was Christina Onassis. She was born to Aristotle and Tina Onassis. And together, that couple already had a child. They already had a son, and they were not looking, nor did they want another child when Christina was born. But thankfully, they carried her to term. They delivered her. They brought her into their home, into their family. However, the life that Christina was born into was a difficult life. You see, her mom never loved her. They never wanted her, and so they never cared for her in in ways that most babies are cared for. And so it's understandable that as Christina grew up, she sensed that. Babies know that. Children know when they're loved. They know when they're accepted. They know when they are wanted. And Christina grew up knowing that her parents really did not want her. They never wanted her. In fact, her mother wanted nothing to do with her, so she had nothing to do with her. Her father only gave her a little bit of attention after her older brother died in a tragic accident. He basically 
began to pay attention to her because he wanted her to take over the family business, continue the legacy, and so he cared about his legacy rather than her welfare. And so by the time Christina was 18 years old, she had such a, a bad perspective of, our, of herself that she despised herself. She hated herself. She hated the way she looked. She hated the way she acted. In fact, at this age in her life, by the age of 18, she had had cosmetic surgery on both her eyes and her nose to change the way she looked. She always felt that she was large and, and ugly, and so she turned to barbiturates to control her weight. At the age of 19, when she got pregnant, she aborted that baby to, to control her weight. Over the next several years, Christina's life continued to spin out of control. She went through four marriages in 20 years. The first marriage lasted a mere nine months. The second marriage lasted only 14 months. Then in 1969, the dad who wanted nothing to do with her, other than to give her the business, died. And he left her with 55% of his estate, 55% of his business empire. That empire netted her a weekly salary of, in today's terms, $7 million. And so Christina took over this business. She took over this empire. She led it, but she did so to live lavishly. And that's exactly what she did. Christina had a, had a thirst, had, a, had a, a, a hankering, if you will, for Coke. Coca-Cola. So she's a Greek woman and she loved American Coke and she would sin when she got low in her resources or low in her stock of Coca-Cola. She would send a jet plane from Athens, Greece to New York City to pick up a new stockpile of Coca-Cola at the tune of $230,000. One occasion, Christina had been on a ski vacation up in the mountains of Switzerland, and she had left behind her David Bowie tape. And as she got back to Athens and realized she no longer had it, she sent a helicopter back from Athens, Greece to Switzerland, rather than just going down to the music store and buying a new copy of David Bowie. Christina would pay between twenty dollars to $30,000 a month just to have some young ladies come and to spend time with her, with her at her house and pretend to be her friends. She lived lavishly. She was a deeply troubled woman, and at the age of 39, she died alone, laying there in her bathtub due to a heart attack. The barbiturates that she abused destroyed her heart. But she died alone with all of her millions of dollars. You see, Christina, from the world's perspective, seemed to have everything anyone would ever want, and yet Christina died empty, and she died broken. From an outsider's perspective, the results of her financial up empire were absolutely upside down. In our thinking, we would think if you have $7 million a week, you ought to be the happiest people on the face of the earth. And yet she was the exact opposite of that. Things of life are not always as they seem to be. In fact, many times what we might regard as a blessing tends to turn out as a curse. There's a natural tendency to think that getting or doing certain things will bring blessings into our lives. And this morning, as we move on in our walk through the gospel book, we're going to see in this passage that the true blessings for Christ's disciples come not from getting, they don't come from doing, but they come from being, being in Christ. The person who believes on Christ, the person who follows his example, finds that life, the life of faith is an upside-down approach to life. It doesn't 
necessarily make sense. The expected material blessings often are delayed. We, we don't even at times see them in this life. But there's this inner feeling that is transformative for the individual disciple, and that spills over into the lives of the people around you and I. Jesus clarifies here in this passage that we're going to look at that his disciples, that while their lives are to include certain actions, their doing flows out of their being in Christ. And so I want us to look at this passage of Scripture and, and, and notice what Jesus wants to teach us this morning. Look with me there in verse 20. Luke says, And he, that's Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall be, or, or for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets." But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you, to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you... What benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Let's take just a couple minutes to review. It's been a few weeks since I've been standing here and working through the Gospel of Luke, specifically this chapter. And so what have we learned so far from Luke chapter 6? Well, we began there in the opening verses seeing that we have in Jesus someone who is greater than the Sabbath. We have someone that actually the Sabbath was, was pointing toward, that, that Jesus is the repose and the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He is everything that the Sabbath day foreshadowed. We've also discovered that love compels the Lord to seek and to heal broken people. We've seen that Jesus is the life giver, that he gives us life. We've also seen that out of his desire to heal the broken, Jesus took 12 men and he appointed them as his apostles. They were the ones who would, after he is gone, 
continue his ministry. He endowed them with the ability to preach. He endowed them with the ability to do signs and wonders so that that would reemphasize the power of the gospel that they're proclaiming. These apostles, these 12 men, would go on after Jesus ascended to the Father to establish the church with its doctrine. And then we saw that after the appointment of those apostles, Jesus came down off the mountain. He comes to a, a, a level place, a plateau, if you will, and there with the apostles, he gives them an object lesson. As disciples were coming to him, as followers of Christ were coming to him, as the crowds were coming to him, Jesus stands there on the level ground and he teaches the people Thus teaching his apostles that you're not higher than the others, but when you minister to other people, you need to be where they are. He teaches them what it means to possess the calling of God. And then what we've read just in, in the last few minutes, we see he begins now on that level plane to teach everyone, but specifically the apostles, what it means to possess this life of blessing. Now the word blessing is, is very crucial to the Jewish mind. As we look at the Jewish people all throughout the Old Testament, the word blessing for them evoked images of a long life. It brought the idea of a full life, of wealth, a large and healthy family, that your barns would be full of grain, that your enemies would be defeated before you. And so in the Jewish mind, when they think of blessing, they think of God's provision, God's protection, God's uh, a defeating of the enemies that, bef that are before them, that they would conquest the, conquest the land and feel it. That's what the idea of blessing meant to the Jewish People. And that's exactly what God had spoken through his covenant that we see in Deuteronomy 28. We could go to Job chapter 1. We could go to Proverbs 3 and see that when, when the blessing was spoken of in the Old Testament, it involved physical and material blessings. And so God even taught and, and disciplined his people in that way during the period of the Old Covenant. And so as we look back on that period, we see that the Israelites, the Jewish people, were of, uh, of infants. They were children in the faith. They were young in the faith. And they needed to mature. And so when Jesus comes along, this period in Israel's history, this childhood is ending, and it's time for their, them to mature in their understanding of God's ways. And so on this plan, the Lord is teaching those who followed him that the truly blessed life does not come from getting, it does not come from doing, it comes from being in Christ. So his emphasis is on God-like character that's flowing from a person who is imbibing or being in Christ. And this is an upside-down discipleship. It doesn't necessarily make sense to us. And so I want you to see three aspects of this upside-down discipleship that I believe we need to grasp this morning. First of all, I want you to notice the profile of Christ's disciple. The profile. What does a, a disciple of Christ look like? Well, in verses 20 through 22, he describes this blessed life. Remember, this idea of blessing is important to the Jewish mind. And so Jesus picks up on this, and he describes what the blessed life actually entails. And as we read the words of this sermon, here's what we need to know going into it. 
This is not Jesus preaching the gospel. This is not Jesus in this, the Sermon on the Plain, or in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus here is not laying out the gospel for people to come to faith to him. Jesus is preaching and teaching to those who are following him, and he's teaching them how to live this out today. And so he's not preaching the gospel. Dead sinners can't can't follow what Jesus is teaching until they first are brought into new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here he's defining the kind of godly character that we as believers should model in our own personal lives. So this profile that Jesus offers is antithetical. It doesn't make sense to us. It's not the expectation of what we would want or expect to experience as a follower of Jesus Christ. After all, as we read through the Old Testament, we see this concept of blessing that's coupled with this idea that we as followers of God are a part of a kingdom. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel spoken of as God's people, God's kingdom. Even when the people come to Samuel and they say, give us a king, Samuel's offended by that because God is their king, right? So there's this picture, there's this image of, of a kingdom there, a people that are a part of God's kingdom. And Jesus picks up on this, and we see this throughout the New Testament, that we are sons and daughters of the king. We are royalty. And so it's understood that if we are members of the kingdom, then the members of the kingdom are wealthy. The members of the kingdom are full. The members of the kingdom are happy. The members of the kingdom are admired. And yet Jesus says the exact opposite of those who are his followers, which means those of the kingdom don't necessarily enjoy temporarily those things. And so here in this profile, he offers four features of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. The first thing he mentions is poor. So if you're a a follower of Jesus Christ, what Jesus is telling us here is that you are, or at least you should expect to be poor. You should expect to to, to struggle in life financially. Historically, the people who choose to turn from their sin and their false religion to turn to Christ, they lose much in the world. You see, in the day in which Jesus is living, the first century, the person who would turn to him, and definitely after Jesus ascends and the church is established, those who would turn from Judaism, those who would turn from paganism, they are turning from that lifestyle, which means they're turning basically from family, they're turning from career, they're turning from the community, and they're now being identified with Jesus, with his followers, which means they're going to struggle because they lose many times all of that. And so that's historically what we see in the early church. That's what we see throughout the Bible. And it's historically what we have seen in cultures all around the world. This, um, this fall, some of us will be going over to South Asia, and, and we will be there working with Hindus. And, and so it is a big deal for a Hindu to turn to Jesus believing on and believing in the gospel. It's a big deal because it's just what we're talking about here. They're turning their back on their religion. They're turning their back on their culture. And also, in many ways, they're turning their back on family and friends. And so they can lose job. They can lose uh, friends and family members. They can lose everything for the sake of the gospel. And so for that reason, most Hindus, at least in my experience, 
They don't just initially say yes to Jesus and follow through in believer's baptism because that is a symbol, an outward symbol, uh, indicating an inward change, which basically says we are breaking from these certain things which can cost them everything. So they, they weigh the cost of discipleship which is what we're called to do as well. And so Jesus here is pointing out that if you're going to follow him, there's an expectation on the life of the believer that poor or poverty is going to be a part of your life. As Christ followers in America, we rarely experience this. And the reason for that is because our culture has been built upon biblical and gospel principles. And so we're not like a a, a culture in the eastern part of our world. We're not a Hindu culture. We're not a Muslim culture. We are a culture that's been built upon Judeo-Christian principles and ethics. And so there is a, a moderate understanding, a moderate embrace of those who would say yes to Jesus. In other words, if you give your life to Jesus, you're not going to lose your job. If you give your life to Jesus, most of your friends are not going to turn their back on you. But I will say this, that's waning. It's not as cultural advantageous these days to be a Christian. In fact, it can be a little bit detrimental. And so we need to recognize as Christ followers in America that Jesus calls for us as his disciples to expect poverty. But there's a second feature. He talks about them being hungry. And so to be poor is to be hungry. The man or woman who's decided to follow Christ often loses his or her ability to thrive professionally, which prevents them from being able to provide food. It's just it's simple logic here. If you no longer have a job, you no longer have an ability to provide food for your family, which means you are hungry. And so as Christ's disciples, there ought to be an expectation that we might go hungry for the sake of Christ. But there's a, th- there's a third feature. He speaks of them being sorrowful. So the losses that come to believers for turning their backs on sinful things bring sorrow to their hearts. See, the Christian life is not always rosy. The Christian life is hard. The Christian life is difficult. And it's hard for us to grasp that here in America where it's so easy to be a Christian. But if we go in other places around the world, they fully understand this. That to follow Jesus Christ means that there oftentimes is great sorrow in your life. Great grief. Great loss. That's just to be expected. Why? Because Jesus endured that, right? We're not greater than our teacher. We're not greater than our master. And so if Jesus endured those things, why should we not expect to endure those things? Times of hunger, times of loss, times of sorrow, times of poverty. There's a fourth feature. It talks about them being rejected. So being rejected, being hated, and overlooked brings sorrow into one's life. But here, I want you to notice something in verse 22. Notice what he says there. He says, when people hate you, when people exclude you, when people revile you, when people spurn you for the sake of the Son of Man. Notice he says, when these things happen, rather than if these things happen. We have a tendency, I think, as Christians to think, That's someone else. It's not my future. It's not going to happen to me. But Jesus says here, when these things happen, don't be be alarmed by it. When these things happen, don't be caught off guard. You should expect these things in your life. This is the profile of what it means to follow me as a disciple. And this is an upside-down discipleship from our perspective. 
But there's a second aspect that Jesus presents here, which enables us as a disciple to move on. You see, if Jesus left it there saying this, blessed are you when you're poor, blessed are you when you're hungry, blessed are you when you weep, blessed are you when people hate you and revile you and, and spurn you, that would be very discouraging to us. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He gives us another thing. He gives us the ability to move on. How does he do that? He gives us hope. See, at times, we might be quick to renounce the allurement of wealth and material things. I think if you've been in church long enough, you've probably heard preaching and teaching on the dangers of wealth, the dangers of money. We might even get caught up in the fact to say that we shouldn't have those things. Well, the Bible never tells us not to have material possession. It never tells us to not have wealth. There's nothing wrong with those things. You can take your Bible and do an exhaustive search, and you will find many people in the Bible who have extensive wealth, right? King Solomon, Job was wealthy. Lydia in Acts chapter 16 was a wealthy woman who was a, a, a businesswoman in the trade of purple fabrics. And so she had an incredible home, apparently, big enough to house a church in. So there's nothing wrong with material things. It's when material things have you. And so we have the tendency, though, to think that material things should fit into the category of sin. And so knowing what the Bible teaches about these dangers of wealth, the dangers of material things, we are often tempted to, to say something like this, money can't bring happiness. Now, would you agree with that statement, that money cannot bring happiness? Anybody agree with that? Shake your head this way or this way. Anybody awake this morning? All right, good. You're still with me. So sometimes we'll say money can't bring happiness. And so a couple weeks ago when I was in Arkansas, I was fishing with one of my best friends, Keith. He's been here a couple times to help with some marriage conference stuff that we did a few years ago. And so we're out in his boat. We're fishing on this peninsula. And we were talking about this issue of money and, and the allurement of money and, and all of that. And so as we're fishing off this peninsula and we're fishing way off the bank and uh, this a man and a woman are on a jet ski, and they just zoom past us. And so as we're talking about this issue of whether or not money can bring happiness or joy and what all that means, it triggered a thought in Keith's mind of a conversation that he had had with a guy that's in a, in a Bible study that he's been leading, and they were talking about money. And so as they discussed this, a guy in the study made the statement that money cannot bring happiness. And, and that one guy said, no, 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 hold it there. I disagree with that. And everybody's like, what do you mean? How could you disagree with that statement? He's like, I just think that's an untrue statement, that money can't bring happiness. And they're like, no, no, you've got it wrong. He's like, no, I can prove it. Have you ever seen anyone on a jet ski that's not happy? <laughs> right? If you've been on a jet ski, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, you can't get on a jet ski and not be happy. I mean, you could be the most grumpy person. You could have a terrible thing going on in your life. You get on a jet ski, you're immediately happy. Because it's fun. I mean, you're going 60 miles an hour. I don't know what a jet ski goes, but it feels like you're going 60 miles an hour. You're jumping waves. You're kind of leaning in and, and spraying people. I mean, you're, you're having a blast on a jet ski. You can't help but smile. You can't help but giggle. You can't help but have a good time. But how did you get on that jet ski? You had to have some money to get on that thing, right? Even if you're on vacation. I've rented jet skis at the beach before. Good night. I could have bought a jet ski by the time, uh, cheaper than I, than I rented that thing. But it was fun. Money can bring happiness. Money can bring happiness. Uh, if I play the lottery, which I don't, 
But if I played the lottery and I won, you know, $500 million or whatever, I tell you right now, who would be happy in this room? My wife would be happy. My children would be happy. We would be happy, right? We'd be paying off this mortgage real, real quick. Snap of a finger, we'd have this sucker paid off. We'd be doing some other things. Money can bring a level of happiness. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. So as we read the Bible, as we specifically look at the words of Jesus here in this Sermon on the Plain, what we're learning is that wealth and material things can bring a level of happiness, but they cannot and will not bring a level of joy. There's something eternal going on here. There's something that's, that's different than the temporal. And so here's where I need to kind of help us out and teach you how to have a good hermeneutic, how to interpret the Scripture. See, when we look at the Scripture... It's important that we never add to nor subtract from what the Bible is presenting. Jesus here does not rebuke wealth. Jesus here does not rebuke material things. So just step back and say, it's okay that I drive a truck that, that guzzles gas you know, by the gallons a second. It's okay, right? Perhaps. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about something more than that. He's not rebuking it. In fact, what Jesus is doing is he's promising blessings, material things, even in heaven, right? For yours is the kingdom. You will be satisfied. You shall laugh. Well, why are you going to laugh? We read other parts in Scripture, and we know that, that what we have in heaven awaiting us is something beautiful and wonderful, and it's tangible, it's material, so the perspective of Christ's disciple, here's the kicker. It's eternal rather than temporal. Yeah, the jet ski can bring me happiness today, but I get off that jet ski, I may be gloomy again. But when Jesus has got a hold of my life, I can have joy even when I don't have happiness. And so this perspective is pictured in the last portions of, uh, of verses 20 and 21 that I just read when he talks about how ours is the kingdom or, or we're going to have the kingdom, we're going to be satisfied, we're going to laugh. We go down to verse 23 and he talks about your reward is great in heaven. So many wonderful blessings will be enjoyed by Christ's disciples in eternity. What are we going to enjoy there? Good food. You ever read in the Bible about the marriage supper of the Lamb? That's not something that's, that, that's kind of... Um, just an idea? No, that's going to be, we're sitting around the table. And we're not wor worried about how we're going to feel after the meal. We're not worried about how many carbs we're eating. We're, we're, we're enjoying good food. We're going to enjoy good drink. We're going to enjoy good fellowship. We're going to enjoy living in an incredible, just beautiful mansion. The Bible tells us that, that Jesus is preparing a place for us. We're going to live in the grandest of homes. It's going, to, it's going to just blow our minds. It's going to dwarf anything we've experienced in this life. We're going to be residents of a wealthy city. The Bible talks about we'll be walking on streets of gold. So Jesus is not talking here that these things are bad. He's just saying the focus can't be on the temporal. It's got to be on the eternal. He offers this eternal perspective that is satisfying rather than a temporal one that is fleeting. Ultimately, we know that joy and satisfaction are solely found in Christ as we are known by him and know him as Lord and Savior. In fact, as we think about heaven and what makes heaven heaven, it's not streets of gold, it's not that beautiful mansion, it's not the wonderful dinner that we're going to sit down with, probably not just once, but daily, right? That's not what makes heaven heaven. Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. 
You give me all those things, I'm still empty and unsatisfied. You give me Jesus with none of those things, I am full and satisfied. That's what Jesus is talking about here as he lays out this perspective. So how can disciples move on and press on and continue to be faithful when their expectation is to be impoverished, when their expectation is to experience hunger, when their expectation is to go through times of sorrow and grief? How can they move forward when the expectation of their life is to be rejected and spurned by those that they're trying to engage, trying to to reach? The reason you can do that is because your eyes are fixed on eternity rather than the here and now. Eternal rather than temporal. But there's a third aspect to this upside-down discipleship that I want to point out. And we see the practice of Christ's disciple. What are we to do? How are we to live? If we go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, we learn that as followers of Jesus, we are two things. We're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. What does salt do? You know, if you've got a, a cut in your uh, hand or somewhere on your body and you're at the beach on vacation, you jump in that salt water and what happens? It stings a little bit, right? It's not fun. And so salt will bring a stinging feeling to one's life. Light will expose that which is in darkness. And so when we as Christians are the salt of the earth and we're the light of the world, sometimes our saltness stings the lives of others. Sometimes the light that's shining from within us exposes the sin in others. And in response to the flavoring and the exposure that believers bring upon those who are in their sin, the spiritually dead show their hatred by rejecting, insulting, abusing, and suing. That's what Jesus is laying out in verses 27 through 36. These are the things that the disciple ought to expect while not enjoying them. Jesus is not saying, hey, delight in the fact that everybody's insulting you. Hey, delight in the fact that everybody's trying to take all that you have because they hate you. That's not to be enjoyed. That's not to be celebrated, but it is to be expected. We don't expect it in America. We've got an easy believism in this country, and I'm grateful Though it's, it's hard to experience the things that we're, the cultural shift that we're experiencing in America, but I believe it is purifying to the church. Weeds out the cultural Christian, it weeds out the nominal Christian, and those who are legit in the faith are the ones who will remain. And so we'll be like our brothers and sisters in the other places around the world, but we don't enjoy those things even while we expect them. So here's the question before us. How do we as Christ's disciple? Treat our enemies. How should we treat our enemies? Jesus presents four practices for the disciple in verses 27 through 36. Here's here's what I want you to understand. We don't view them as rules. We shouldn't view these practices as commands. But instead, they ought to be viewed from the perspective of, this is the attitude I have as I respond to those who don't look favorable upon me. We look at them from the perspective of, hey, I've received grace, I want to give grace. I've received mercy, I want to give mercy. I've been forgiven, I want to forgive. I've been, or Jesus has not condemned me, so I don't want to condemn others. Uh, Next Sunday, or I should say two Sundays from now, we're going to get into the next passage, which is one of the most 
misquoted passages in all the Bible where it says, judge not lest you be judged. So we're going to get into that in a couple Sundays. But we have not been condemned, and so we don't want to condemn others. We want to speak truth into people's lives. And so at the same time, verse 31 gives us Luke's version of the golden rule. Hey, the way I've been treated, I want to treat others. The way I would like for people to treat me, that's the way I'm going to treat them. So that's the attitude as we walk through and live out these practices of a disciple of Christ. Here they are, four of them. Number one, love the unlovable. Jesus talks about in verse 27, he says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Love, your, love the unlovable. You know any unlovable people in your life? Absolutely. Sometimes you're the unlovable person, right? Sometimes I'm the unlovable person. But as Christians, we don't treat people the way they should be treated. We treat people the way Jesus would treat them. We love the unlovable. I mean, that's what he's done to you. You're not lovable. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You were a rebel against God. You were a hater of God. That's what the Bible describes us, the way it describes us before Jesus. And Jesus came, and he loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave. So we love the unlovable. Secondly, we, we are to be kind to the unkind. We're to be good to those who hate you. We're to bless those who curse. We're to pray for those who abuse. So we're to be kind to those who are unkind. Thirdly, we're to be generous to the needy. He talks about the one who strikes you in the cheek, offer the other also. The one who takes away your cloak, don't withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs, he says. From the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Just be generous. Just be generous. And then fourthly, we mimic the Father's example. You see, all of this is not something that Jesus is just kind of laying out there for the first time. No, this is the way God the Father has treated us. And so we're just walking in that. We're imaging that. Is that not how we were created to begin with? That we are created in the image of God to image him, to portray him, to mirror him, to, to, to uh, put that on display before all of creation. So we are to mimic the Father's example. Look at verse 35. He says, but love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, for you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as the Father is merciful. We mimic the Father's example. So Christ's disciple loves. Christ's disciple does good to the ungrateful and the evil person, not to earn favor with God, but simply to mimic God. Again, as we read this, we need to keep in mind that this is not the gospel. We don't follow this. When it says you will be sons of the Most High, he's not talking about this is the way you earn your salvation. This is the way you come into relationship with Jesus. He's just saying this. No, as you practice this in your life, you're looking just like the God who created you for himself. As you practice this in your life, you look just like the Savior who has come into your life and transformed you. That's what he's saying here. We mimic the Father because something has changed within our hearts when Jesus came and took up residence. So we re we've received mercy. We've received grace. We now offer grace and mercy to others despite how they may respond to us. I've heard it said many times that there's never an excuse to be unkind. You ever heard somebody say something like that? There's, there's never a reason to be unloving. There's never a reason to be unkind. As a follower of Jesus, we don't have the right to be unkind because God has never been unkind to us. 
And so we want to reciprocate that. We want to mimic that. We want to image that before a watching world. We can't do this on our own. The reason I've titled this Upside Down Discipleship is because we in our, in our human fallenness, we expect to be able to do this on our own. But the truth is, I can't do any of these things. I can't love the unlovable. I can't be kind to the unkind. I can't be generous to the needy. I can't even mimic the Father's example on my own. But because Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, lives within my life, I have the ability to do that. His life pressed out through my life. His life pressed out through your life. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to practice these things in our lives. Christina Onassis seemed to have everything anyone would ever want in this life. She could buy, she could go, she could do anything she wanted to do. I mean, right now, I don't know about you, but the way we, my home is approaching things with the escalation in prices, it's like, how much is it going to cost us? And we're kind of evaluating whether or not we should do that, right? I mean, we drove to Arkansas with gas prices just out of this world. And so a few months ago, when this all started, we're like, if it gets to a certain amount, we may not be able to make the trip. But if you're in Christina Onassis' situation 40 years ago, 50 years ago, it's like, I don't care what the price of fuel is. I, I, need, a cup, I, I need a case of Coke. Let's send the jet over to New York City. Can you imagine that? And yet it never brought her joy. It, it never brought her eternal, lasting happiness. The results of her financial empire were upside down. But then again, as we look at this passage, we begin to understand that the things of life are not always as they seem. What we may regard as blessings can be more of a curse. And Jesus here in this text is teaching us that true blessings come not from getting. They don't come from doing. They come from simple being in Christ. The person who believes on Jesus and follows his example finds that the life of faith is absolutely upside down. That the expected material blessings are often delayed. I mean, think about it. If you're walking with Jesus, you would expect, you would want that there to be some blessings in this life. But many times those blessings are laid up in heaven. Isn't that what Jesus tells us? Lay up your treasures in heaven where they can't be stolen, where the moss won't come in and, and destroy them, where nothing can touch them. They're safe and they're secure and they're waiting you on the other side. That's the eternal perspective we've got to keep on life. That the things that we're experiencing here are temporal. They're fleeting. They're passing. They're not as important. The only thing that's important in this life is the eternal souls that we walk around every single day. Every person will live for eternity. I should say exist in eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell. And the way we live our life largely will determine where the people in our circles of influence will find their eternal resting spot. So, do we get to enjoy good things in this life? Absolutely. God is so gracious and so merciful. He blesses us with those things. But there is so much more awaiting us. And Jesus is calling on his disciples here to have that eternal perspective, saying, hey, if you're going to follow me, life may not be easy, but there's a day coming. It's going to be sweet. Sweet. So live with your eyes fixed upon me, the author and perfecter of your faith. Live in that manner and allow me to work through you, in you and through you, to do incredible and wonderful things. Allow my love to be on full display 
in and through your life. This morning, many of you sit in this room, many of you watching online, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. But the question I would ask of you this morning is this, are you abiding in Christ? You see, there's many times as a follower of Jesus, we can walk at a guilty distance. We cannot really be in sweet fellowship with the Lord. And and the Bible calls us, Jesus calls us constantly to abide in him, to rest in him, to to live in him, to allow him to have full control of our lives. And so this morning, if you're not abiding in, in him, what is it that would keep you from that? What is it that's distracted you? Are your eyes on something that's, that, that's keeping you from the best? Good things that are keeping you from the very best. Some of you, perhaps, the greatest need in your life is not to figure out how to be a better disciple. It's to become a disciple, follower of Jesus. You're still dead in your sins and trespasses. Uh, you're still a person who is uh, in the casket of life, if you will. Right? You can't follow Jesus because you're dead. You need him to awaken you. You need him to lift you out of that casket and give you new life. And so this morning, the gospel message would call us to faith. It would call us to trust in him. It would call us to confess our sin and need and trust him as Lord and Savior. What would keep you from that today? I haven't mentioned these three things in quite a while, but I'm going to mention them this morning. As we talk about what it means to follow Jesus, what, what the gospel is, many times we use three phrases, good news, bad news, and best news. The good news is God loves you. He created you. He wants to be in a relationship with you. The bad news is, is you're a sinner, rebel, a hater of God. You want nothing to do with him. You're at war with God, right? That's what the Bible tells us. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and following would, would lay that out, that we are literally warring against God in our sin. But the best news is that God sent his son, even while we were at war with him, to bring peace. How did he do that? Through the cross. You see, Jesus took the sin from your life upon himself, and he bore that sin so that you could be set free. Your punishment that you deserve, he bore on himself so that you could be free of that punishment. God could be just in dealing with sin, and yet you could be forgiven of that sin because Jesus bore the payment, bore the punishment. And so we receive that by faith as we say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm condemned before you, but I understand that you love me, you care for me, you've paid the penalty for my sin on the cross, and I trust you as Lord and Savior. I turn from sin, and in faith, turn to you. I hope that you've done that. If you've never done that this morning, We're going to move into a time of response. I would just ask that you just make that profession of faith to the Lord and even come down this morning and say, I want to give my life to Jesus and do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are a great God who calls us into fellowship with you. Lord, I thank you that your word is literally saturated with story after story after story of you engaging and seeking out sinful human beings. It started in the Garden of Eden, and Lord, it's been continuing all throughout the Bible. Father, we know that there's coming a day because Revelation tells us that you will come back and bring a culmination to salvation history, if you will. The history of you pursuing mankind. And so we don't have forever, but we have this moment to place our faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, I pray for those in this room, those watching this morning who have never done that. God, I pray you give them the boldness, the courage to say, Lord, I'm a sinner, but I want to be forgiven. Would you forgive me? 
Lord, in faith, I turn from my sin. Lord, in faith, I trust you as Lord and Savior. Lord, help me now to walk in this new life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for Christians in this room, those watching. It's so easy at times to get caught up in the temporal things all around us. Lord, to get caught up in our focus set on the job that we're doing, the profession that we're in get caught up in what our kids are doing or not able to do, get caught up in the controversy within the community or the controversy in in politics and and just things in this world. They're important, but they're not the most important. In fact, Lord, they can even be super discouraging. So, Father, I pray that as Christians, we would be able to lift our eyes off the temporal things around us and fix them upon the eternal things which is Jesus, which is heaven. And Father, I pray that when our eyes are fixed upon you, that it wouldn't matter what comes against us. Lord, if we lose the job tomorrow, it's okay. God is sitting on the throne. Lord, if we lose a loved one, yes, it hurts deeply, and we're grieving and we're sorrowful, but Jesus is still on the throne. When that bad report comes back from the doctor, uh, we're blown away by it. We're, we're, we're overwhelmed by it to some extent, but Jesus is still on the throne. God, remind us that you're faithful and good. Lord, in our church family right now, there are some families that need to be reminded of that. That you are faithful and good. And so minister to their hearts this morning. Lord, our sister Barbara, she's in the hospital. I'm sure having tests. Who knows what's going on around? We can, our imaginations could just go anywhere with that. Help her, Lord, to remember you're faithful and good. She's one of the most faithful women I know. In this time of response, Father, Help us to look up. In Jesus' name.